you listen to this podcast, you know that the Canadian media is in serious trouble. But in recent weeks, that crisis has intensified with wave after wave of bad news for the industry. Bell Canada laid off 1,300 staff. And when this episode was recorded, merger talks between the two biggest newspaper publishers were ongoing. Negotiations have since broken down. Add to that, in the wake of controversial new legislation, Bill C-18, Google and Facebook announced they would remove links to Canadian journalism from the platforms. Though just as this episode closed, Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez announced that the government was drafting regulations that would set a cap on what Google and Facebook would be required to pay our news industry. So today, given all that's going on, we'll have a special hour-long episode of Lean Out. And my guest will be here to help me unpack these developments and to think through the state of our press, from lost public trust and pandemic mistakes to the rise of independent outlets and the future of the CBC. Jen Gerson is a Calgary journalist, a contributing columnist to the Globe and Mail, and co-founder of the Canadian outlet The Line. She's currently writing a book about moral panics. Jen Gerson is my guest today on Lean Out. Jen, welcome to Lean Out. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. I am a subscriber to the line. And uh, as you know, I'm an admirer of what you do there. And I have to say just off the top that watching you and Matt Gurney build the outlet really helped me when I was still in the mainstream media. I could see the line working. I could see the impact widening the Overton window. Um, And it did also help inspire me to go to Substack since you did demonstrate this is a viable option. So thank you for that. I think the Um, advice I gave you at the time was like, don't don't necessarily expect that this is going to make you rich. (laughs) But if you get into the the market soon enough and you and you ride this particular wave there, there's an opportunity for you. And and I think that you've uh, amply taken advantage of that opportunity. And I also said, you know, don't worry about the haters. At the end of the day, the only thing that really matters is the work. And uh, I think that also you 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 have amply demonstrated that uh, you are willing to do the work and you do a lot of really interesting conversations on this podcast. So good for you. Well, thank you so much. Um, I was really excited to have you on at this particular moment because there is so much going on in Canadian media right now. And I wanted us to have a conversation journalist to journalist that I feel would benefit uh, the listeners because I don't think the public always fully understands kind of the ins and outs of what's going on in the media, a point that you've made in the past. So right now we're in a particular moment. There has been mass layoffs from Bell Media. There's a possible merger between two big media companies here in Canada, Post Media and Torstar. And there is new legislation, the Online News Act Bill C-18. For listeners in other countries, can you just paint a picture of what the environment is that we're working in right now? Well, I think there's an old saying about going broke. And and I can't remember who said it or under what circumstances because I don't have that kind of memory. But someone said about how did you go broke? And the answer was slowly, slowly, and then all at once. That's kind of what's happening here. We've been going broke in Canadian media slowly, slowly for 20 years now. And now we're going broke all at once. It's all collapsing simultaneously. Um, I mean, the last two weeks for media news has been off the like off the chain. So uh, Bell News is a major is a major player of journalists. Not only have they laid off thirteen hundred staff across their their I think their Bell Media division, but they have now asked the regulator. So they are subject to the Canadian regulator called the CRTC, um, because of course they gain access to public broadcast airwaves. So as a result, they're subject to the Broadcasting Act, which requires that they spend certain amounts of their of, of their revenue on programs of national interest, news, award shows, local Canadian content, that kind of thing. And so they've now gone back to that regulator and said, please, can we spend less money on news? Um, There's no money in this. We're losing money in in this division. Bell Media is a bit of an interesting example because, of course, its parent company, BC, BC Inc., is a hugely profitable enterprise because not only do they manage broadcast airwaves, but they're also a major teleco company in a country that is has a telecom telecoms oligopoly. So they make billions of dollars per year, but their media division isn't necessarily pulling in the, the weight. Um, so they've now gone back to the broadcaster regulator and said, please, we don't want to continue to lose money in this particular sector. We want to spend more money on programs of national interest that 
costs less to produce award shows, dramas, that kind of thing. So that's happening. Uh, what else? Yeah, and that's that's on top of just just a couple of years now of successive layoffs and 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 downgrades across the broader broadcast market. The newspapers are in the shit. The only newspaper I th- that we think is probably doing okay is the Globe and Mail. The Globe and Mail has kind of got a a new New York Times kind of model here in in New York Times slash Washington Post kind of model here in Canada, where they're kind of, they're the respectable national outlet. This allows them to command a significant fee in terms of subscription revenue. Um, and also they're privately held, they're privately owned. So we don't actually know how much money they're gaining or losing, but they're, they're, they're privately held by a very wealthy company here in Canada. And we presume that that wealthy, sorry, wealthy family here in Canada, and we presume that that wealthy family is going to continue to basically allow it to not potentially lose money um, in order to subsidize the, the, the public good that they serve. All of the other newspapers, on the other hand, are completely fucked. Sports Star is one of the major chains. Post Media is one of the major chains, and traditionally, these would be the the chains that uh, would provide national newspapers, but also the local newspapers. So it's not just the National Post or or, or anything like that. It's also the Toronto Star. It's the it's the Calgary Herald. It's the Vancouver Sun. It's the Montreal Gazette. And we've seen, you know, basically since I used to work at the Calgary Herald like ten years ago, that these publications are. Um, Zombies is maybe the word I'm looking for. Uh, very few staff still technically running these newspapers. A lot of these newspapers have merged with their former competitors and then been reduced further. And much of the content that is produced in these local papers is now centralized. So not only are the papers put together, uh, when I say put together or put laid out, so the actual layout of the pages is all centralized in Hamilton. But now increasingly so much of the actual content that is produced and gathered is is highly centralized in order to maximize efficiencies. So the distinction between a Calgary Herald and an Edmonton Journal is now very nominal. So that's happening. Um, And on top of that, Post Media is is a longstanding chain, has probably 30 years worth of legacy debts and problems that have been compiling uh, that company has been in and out of various forms of bankruptcies and restructuring since time immemorial, certainly well before I got into journalism. When I got into journalism, it was Can West. Before that, it was the Conrad Black papers. After I got into journalism, or uh, sorry, after I took a job at the Calgary Herald, they were just merging into becoming Post Media. And it's internal speculation as to how much longer they can continue on their current path. Not only are they dealing with the large macroeconomic issues around uh, journalism, but they also have significant amounts of debt. They're owned in part by an American hedge fund company. And I think the general sense is like the hedgies are just stringing this entire zombie operation along in order to make their debt payments because they pay or traditionally have paid fairly exorbitant rates of debt on their on, on, on outstanding capital. And as a result, it has behooved the actual owners not to actually run these companies as journalistic endeavors, but rather to run them as thinly as possible in order to uh, force them to pay back their extremely high debt rates. And that's that's their business model. That's how they stay afloat. Uh, Torstar, I think, is is in a slightly better situation debt-wise, although I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the numbers. I, I am not the person you're going to go to for a financial accounting. <laughs> uh, that's not me. But I think they're they're slightly better off, but their long-term trends in terms of the revenue they're bringing in are, are now collapsing so dramatically that the once unthinkable prospect of Torstar and Postmedia, the two major uh, chains, are now talking about a merger. We can get into that <laughs> if you like, but I'm just trying to set the scene. Mm. And then on top of all of this, you have a, a federal government that w- it says it wants to save journalism. That is its stated goal and mandate. In order to do that, they've passed something called C-18, which is loosely modeled off of the Australian legislation, which would have required companies like Google and Facebook to pay media outlets for sharing the links to those media outlets, uh, essentially link tax. Now, the Australian model was an interesting story that we could get into in greater depth. But Canada essentially tried to mimic that model, but they tried to mimic that model in a way that was a little bit harsher than what Australia did. And as a result, Facebook and Google have now said, well, if you're going to force us to pay for links, which presents 
potentially an uncapped liability to us because of course we don't control other people post your links um, or you're going to assign a, a basically a false value to your links the correct business response for us is to simply stop providing your links so they warned all throughout the process of C18 being uh, negotiated and going through the various democratic processes it went through they did warn Facebook especially you do this and we're out like we're not going to to give you a blank check like this is like funnily enough they actually were much more amenable to something like a tax or a journalism fund or something like that because i mean that that would give them a certain degree of um financial stability that they could plan around right but they were like look if you're just gonna pass this thing that says that we have to pay some undisclosed un- undisputed amount of sum of money to these media outlets overseen by the government and we can't control what those amounts amount to then that's there's there's a no-brainer from, from Facebook's perspective. Facebook said, you know, news makes up three to five percent of our overall feed. Like we, we don't care, just we'll cut you out tomorrow. Like this isn't there's no value add for here here for us if this is what you're gonna force us to do. Google was a bit more circumspect about their approach to this and their business model and what they do is very different, which is why. I mean, I can get into that in greater detail if you like. Again, this is a bit of an onion episode. The more <laughs> every pathway you want to look down, it just gets more and more. <laughs> convoluted. But anyway, Google was a bit more circumspect, but essentially this week they then announced, well, you know, we've been looking for certain reassurances from the minister that we weren't going to be signing up for some kind of uncapped liability, that there was going to be some kind of exemption path, which allowed us to negotiate these voluntary deals and wasn't going to force us into these other types of bad deals. And um, we didn't get those reassurances. So fuck it, we're out. And they announced this week that they would no longer be surfacing Canadian news links for Canadian users. So what that means, if you're a Canadian user, is that if you are looking up a topic, foreign interference, Chinese foreign interference, um, and you Google that topic, no news, no Canadian news links are going to get surfaced. You can still go to like the globeandmail.com, or you can still go to the National Post, and you can still look for news that way. But no Canadian news, news, news is going to be surfaced on a Google search result. But American ones will. But an American one will be, because of course America is not subject. And it also means that if you're an American and you're searching for some for a Canadian topic, Canadian news results will come up for you because you are in America. But they're not going to be coming up for Canadians. So essentially we're fucked. I don't know what else to say. Like Facebook cutting Canadian news out, and this, by the way, doesn't just apply to people who hope to benefit by C18, because I mean I work for, or I co-founded a company called The Line, and we made it very clear we have no desire to participate in any of these schemes at all. We we believe that the future for our company is going to be subscription funding, and there may be some other funding models in there for us, but it's not going to be coming from government funding, nor is it going to be coming from like this weird faux market-based solution that isn't a market-based solution, because if it were a market-based solution, the government wouldn't need to force these companies to do it. We're not going to participate in it. But that doesn't matter because we're still news. And in order for Facebook and Google to pull themselves out of the scope of the legislation, they're just going to have to stop stop sharing all of it. So it fucks us all over. So not only is Postmedia and Torstar in their attempt to try and save themselves, not going to successfully save themselves, they're going to fuck everyone else in the process. And to, to make matters even better, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't actually preserve them in any way. So anyway, it's um Bad scene. It's a bad scene. Now, there are lots of people who are saying, hey, Facebook and Google are just bluffing. This is what they did in Australia. This is part of a negotiation process. Mm-hmm. There is some truth to that, but it's not as much as people would like to believe. And I think that as things stand today, Canadian media ought to prepare for at least a temporary shutdown of traffic from Facebook and Google. Facebook is survivable. Google is not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I've seen charts that say something like 75% in some cases of of natural and organic traffic is coming from Google. You know, imagine losing half your traffic to your new site overnight. The switches go off. Mm -hmm. I don't think that a lot of Canadian media really get how existentially, existentially bad that will be for them. I think they're just starting to get it. And... The prospect of that happening is so bad that a lot of people are still in denial about it being a possibility. Mm -hmm. So in that scenario, 
bad decisions and bad strategy is is being enacted and that's it's bad it's all bad it's all it's all bad i don't know what to say i mean it it really is something peter menzies has a piece today that just came out titled how the government accidentally pushed the news industry into the abyss um yeah and, and, and not just push the news industry into the abyss because it would be one thing if they had pushed some of these zombie companies, which is what I would what I describe postmedia and source, source are as. I mean, they're not sustainable companies. There's no path to sustainability as far as I can see here. It would be one thing if they allowed some of those companies to to collapse. I mean, it would be bad. That in and of itself would be bad and would lead to probably a 10 to 15 year interregnum period where something would have to be created to replace it. So that would be bad enough. But with the way that we're doing it now, we're not just fucking over postmedia and Torstar. We're now fucking over everybody. So not only are you screwing over the companies that are probably doomed anyway, you're screwing over all of the companies that could potentially be equipped to replace them after their collapse. So good job, everybody. Well done. Well, and this comes, as you pointed out in a, in, in a recent piece um, from the editors at The Line, the mainstream media is not dying because you don't like it. Yeah. This this all comes in the context of a collapse of the advertising business model. Yeah. yeah. This um, which is, and I, this is something that people don't understand. Mm-hmm. A lot of people really cheer on the collapse of media for reasons that are both valid and invalid. But one of the things that they assume is because we suck so badly, nobody's wa- we, nobody's reading us anymore. Nobody's watching us anymore. That is just demonstrably false. I mean, we may suck so badly, but believe me, we're being read. I mean, you look at the numbers that an article or or a page can pull today, and you compare it to the number of eyeballs that an article could reach in the absolute business heyday of journalism. And it's multiple times larger. Like a piece now can get a million eyeballs. That couldn't mm-hmm. that couldn't happen in the 80s or the 90s. No. You know, like like a piece now can go viral and uh, achieve just a, a global, international recognition and notoriety in a way that simply could not have happened back when we were flush with cash. So, like the actual number of people reading any given news outlet is is way higher than anything we could have ever dreamed of previously. What's changed, and what people don't understand, is that. You know, most news media outlets are not in the business of producing journalism for profit. They're in the business of producing journalism to gain readers that they can then sell to advertisers, right? Most journalism traditionally has been free or very low cost because you, the reader, your eyeballs were what was actually being sold. You didn't necessarily know that, but... You know, and the, and the journalists who produced the content saw you as being the client or the or or, or the end end product. But the people who were actually running the business, making the money, understood that the actual product was the reader, not the other way around. So what happened is, and this didn't just start with Google or Facebook, by the way. This is another misconception. What really fucked over newspapers was the rise of Craigslist. Mm-hmm. It was the rise of because a third of a third up to a, in some cases up to half of, of 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 advertising, but typically about a third of advertising was typically coming from that those small ball low cost uh, classified sections that newspapers used that used to bulk up these newspapers. It wasn't the big national you know, ad spends that would happen across the country. It was a thousand people in your local community advertising their local garage sales or advertising, you know, a job for sale or something like that. That is actually what used to make up the bulk of news, a significant bulk of newspaper revenue. And when the internet happened, you had a lot of short-sighted newspaper executives right across the board who looked at this and said, well, this internet thing's a fad. We don't need to react to this. We don't need to be respond to this. You know, they had a couple years where they could have, been had some foresight and said, oh shit, this is going to eat us. We best create our own version of Craigslist. But no, they didn't. They didn't. They just didn't. They said, this is a fad. This will go away. We are the kings of the universe and always will be. And they didn't respond. And as a result, Craigslist ate them. And then Kijiji. And you know, there's a third of your revenue. And basically it's been all downhill from there. Social media starts to come into the play later in this collapse than people often realize. Social media comes into play and what Facebook can do and Google can do that newspapers cannot is that they can offer dramatically better targeted advertising for 
a much lower cost. So newspapers can now no longer compete for ad space or for ad spend, which is actually what kills us. Because what happens is that something like Google comes along, they have such a detailed capacity. So they have so much information about each and every user that it becomes a matter of flicking a couple of switches on the algorithm for them to promise a potential advertiser the most beautifully targeted audience that humans can conceive of. And that audience has a much higher probability of spending money on that particular product than someone who goes to a a newspaper and says, I'm going to spend $100,000 and get an advertising or a bit of advertising across all the newspapers in order to get in front of people's noses. The other thing that people didn't don't quite like to talk about is that the internet really revealed, I think, one of the underlying lies of advertising, the underpinned advertising, print advertising. And that was, it used to be that if you put an ad in a, something in a print, in a newspaper or magazine, the general assumption was like 2% of people who saw that ad would respond to it in some way, pay for something, look it up, go look at your product in person, that sort of thing. It was it was something like a 2% response rate was something that, that, that all of these companies used to used to advertise for or, or, or say that they could they could achieve. So if you had a newspaper that had, you know, 100 people went out to 100 people, the assumption was like you were actually reaching two people with your ad. And so the ad rates would be calculated accordingly, right? So if you have a million people, your ad rates are calculated accordingly. What the internet did is that the internet provided us real-time feedback on how effective ads were. And they did this through being able to quantify click-through rates. This is something that a print ad just can't do because of course it's a print ad. But a click-through rate reveals what an engagement rate on an advertising piece of advertising actually is. And also really, it was way lower than 2%. <laughs> it was way lower than 2%. So not only could these uh, advertisers provide far more focused advertising to far better audiences at a fraction of the rate, because of course they have no overhead, right? There's no, they're not paying for journals. They're not paying for print. They're not paying for any of this. They're paying for server space. So they can use algorithms and, and, and targeted technologies in a much more affected way. But then they can also demonstrate what the actual um, value of their advertising is because they're providing click-through rates and now they're providing things like cookies, essentially. So essentially, you you look at a, a product from an influencer you see on YouTube, you click on the product, that product page inserts a little cookie onto your browser. And then if you purchase that product anytime in the next two months after after you see it, then that influencer gets a cut or a commission of, of, of the sale kind of thing, right? So they have metrics that are so much more precise and so much more detailed than anything any print organization can offer that essentially the internet just took these advertising monopolies that journalists journalists traditionally had and they blew it out of the water. We can't compete. Mm-hmm. It's just what it is. And that's what's collapsed the business model. And that's why, and, and it's collapsed right across the board. So Yes, okay, I can talk about how we manage Postmedia or Torstar or any of these companies are. And, and yeah, their bad decisions were made, bad business decisions, absolutely. Lack of responsiveness, lack of foresight, lack of leadership. All of these companies are guilty of this. But the reason why this advertising or the business model has collapsed right across the market has been essentially for the same macro reasons. The best business minds um, in the 1990s and the 2000s probably could have made better decisions and probably these companies would be better positioned than they are today. But no, the best business lines in the world couldn't replicate the heydays of the 70s and 80s. It's just, Mm. that ain't coming back. So- so I think I think you've done a really good job of sort of painting a picture of of the moment that we're in right now mm-hmm. and and the pressures on journalism in this country. We could probably go down a million routes and go deeper oh, into each one of those. Yes, but and if and, and if you and if you don't manage me, I will because I could, <laughs> like I'm sorry, but like like I said, every single side topic that I've brought up here has a whole. Of course, labyrinth. What, what I, I want to get into. What I want to do now is, get, given the fact that this is the state that the industry is, I want to talk about a few of the really big issues that have come up in the last year or so, and try to unpack those a little bit. And the first one is trust in media. Mm. Um, so we know that trust in media is at its lowest point in seven years, and the dominant view from the legacy press, you know, best as I can tell, seems to be that this trust has been lost as a result of social media. Not um, our fault. They did it to us. Yes. I tend to think 
this has more to do with journalistic mistakes, particularly during the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, from a feeling from the public that the media has become too ideological and a response to this sort of post-Trump approach of journalism that seeks to influence public opinion. What is your sense of why trust in media has been lost? I think that there's all of the above, but I'll add to what you just said, just the corrosive effects of disinter- disintermediation. Disintermediation. I'm smart. I can say words. Disintermediation. <laughs> so social media starts to pop up. I mean, Paul Wells actually did a really excellent segment about this. And what happens during social when, with the rise of social media is that the traditional gatekeepers of information, which were traditionally journalists, cease to be as important or crucial to the overall discourse as once they were. There is a process we call it disintermediation by which where people get their information, who their sources of trust are, is democratized, wildly democratized. And as a result of that, more voices come to the fore, more options for for informing yourself come to the fore. Some of those options are good. Some of those options are not good. And this breaks down the priesthood of journalism. This breaks down the traditional relationship that a reader would have with a journalist or with a, a journalistic outlet. That all predates COVID. And that was happening. That's been happening. I mean, really, you you can argue that's been happening since the 80s. That accelerated during the 90s, of course, as the internet became more widespread. And that really took off with social media, that whole process. So a lot of the decline in trust issues predate the specific things we're talking about. But all, but the, I say the, the, the broader disintermediation process set the groundwork for a catastrophic collapse in trust in media that we've seen over the last, I think, seven years, I think is a good way of putting it. And yes, so all of these companies were were under significant financial stress when this pro- when so, so so there's the pre there's the pre let's say let's break it into two areas there's the pre-Trump disintermediation process in which you know you have all of these companies are getting killed they're getting their you know their 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 finances are falling down a cliff um, and as a result most of them respond by cutting staff significantly cutting staff which means the amount of resources that are spent on functioning at the most basic level is collapsing Mm -hmm. news gathering fact checking news gathering fact checking editing basic editing i mean if you think one thing that people really noticed when i was beginning my career was like why are there so many typos in my newspaper now it's like well because we have we fired all the copy editors (laughs) they're gone now you know they don't exist anymore i mean by the time i left the calgary herald my god i mean i was i was writing stuff to the page and it wasn't even getting read read by an editor like, I'm not kidding. <laughs> like it went right to page. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I made a mistake, there was no, there was no safety net. There was none. It was all gone. And as a result, mistakes went up, typos went up, errors went up. Also, as the editing process collapsed in on itself, the institutional judgment and sort of institutional norms that had been established from the previous century of journalism, that came under threat as well. Because well shit if there's no if there's if there's essentially no signing editor and I'm doing my own stuff anyway nobody's checking my shit before it hits the page anyway because that's what happens when you know all these newsrooms shrink well then where's the hierarchy where's the establishment of norms and values where's like that that all starts to go away really quickly right so mm-hmm. that's what happens prior to the Trump era a lot of these things are already on really shaky ground then we get into Trump and I think that there was a strong reaction among a significant subset of journalists. Who said, oh shit, the old values are not holding, because if the old values were holding, Trump would not be possible. It is our duty not just to inform people, but to prevent them from making um but to prevent a descent into fascism, which is what they saw Trump as. And therefore, the the old sort of expectations of objectivity and dispassion and fairness are no longer adequate to serve the current moment because we're no longer in an era of normal right versus left. He said, she said, we're now in an era where if I personally don't impose my truth upon you, um, you, you reader, you will make the bad decision and we will become a fascist state. Like this is, this became a moral calling in and of itself. I understand how they got there, but the end result was not to create an environment in which the people who disagreed with them came around. (laughs) The end result was that as this disintermediation effect is happening, people were like, yeah, well, fuck you. I'm going to go and 
look at other sources of news. I'm just going to find other sources of news and, and information because clearly you're not representing me. You're not understanding me. You're not being fair to my guy. You're not blah, 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 blah. Name your reason. Mm-hmm. Right? And, so this and starts to happen. they're losing readers who probably are not fans of Trump as well because people do yes. not like being condescended to. People they don't do. like being condescended to. They don't like, they. they, they, they it's not, it's also to be blunt, a lot of journalists have their heart in the right place, but they're not necessarily the smartest people in the room. So, you know, their their judgment isn't infallible. <laughs> it's just what it is, right? Like, and I say this as a journalist myself. I'm I'm, I'm ordinarily intelligent, but you know, I'm not I'm not educated. <laughs> you know? The only thing I'm educated in is is how to learn stuff um, quickly. But like, that's my only skill set. Like, I'm I I I didn't get a PhD in anything. I don't know, right? But you know, I'm pretty good at sniffing out bullshit. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a purpose and a, and a, and a value here. And then the other interesting thing that started to happen as a result of what was happening in the media writ large is that I says blue collar workers and and people coming from middle class backgrounds could no longer find an end into journalism. Yeah, because as the industry starts to shrink and get smaller and smaller and smaller, the credentialism starts to go up and up and up. So, I mean, I look at my particular career path and I, you know, I wore journalism shoes. I'm like, you couldn't replicate my career path today. I got, I had a bachelor's I mean, even a bachelor's, you know, 20 years ago was way beyond what you need. Well, maybe 20, but 30 years ago was way beyond what you needed to get into journalism. Like, if you look at what journalists do, like call up people, we figure stuff out and crunch it down and it goes, this is not, this is not rocket science, right? But so essentially even a bachelor was considered, you know, more than, more than sufficient you know, 20 years ago. And then even by the time I was in my late twenties, you know, you couldn't get an internship without a master's. Fuck that. And then, you know, by the time I'm in my early thirties, it's like, you need a PhD. So, you know, you've got people sort of doing these very low level entry level work in journalists, stuff that does not require IQs of 110. Let's just put it that way. And you have people with PhDs now trying to get this kind of stuff. I mean, that that shift was a huge part of the culture shift as well, right? Mm-hmm. So now some of this stopped being a blue collar type of, or not blue collar, but I mean, it stopped being a working class, middle class type of job with people coming from middle class backgrounds. And also with the, the decline of the paid internship as well, it meant that the only people who could afford to do this, some of these internships were people who were coming from wealthier backgrounds. And so the, 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 the class dynamics really shifted in newsrooms and shifted very, very quickly. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, someone like me goes into a newsroom, and I'm like, I go to my fucking diner. <laughs> like I'm, I, I, I'm not that. And then all of a sudden, you know, the people who are ten years younger than me are wildly more educated than I am, and they're coming at this with just a whole set of theory that that is just. I just report the news. <laughs> you know, like I, you know, they're coming at this from with with college degrees and with education and with and with ideological backgrounds that are wildly different. So this mm-hmm. this starts, I think, really starts to shift the dynamic within newsrooms as well. And you also have a class of people who, because of their superior education, feel much more entitled to condescend, feel much more entitled to espouse truth, feel much more entitled to be like, no, the guys I disagree with are fascists, and I'm I'm on a holy cause, right? Yeah. So this all shifts, and then. There's a weird paradox here that you have people who are wildly overeducated for their positions, but also wildly underpaid and undercompensated for their positions. So mm-hmm. what are they getting out of that dynamic in that exchange, right? That that really shifts. And that shifts shifts, shifts very quickly. Like I said, like I, I got into journalism in what year did I graduate university? I forgot. 2006, something like that. And I, you know, and so I was in journalism 2007, 2008, thereabouts is kind of where's my entry point. Well, that wasn't that long ago. I mean, maybe I'm looking in the mirror and maybe I'm just like, I don't feel like I'm that old. Maybe I am. I mean, I'm almost 40 now. But the the, the situation for people who in their 20s now who are getting into journalism is way harder than anything I ever had to do. Way harder. Just wildly harder and shittier. Just, just a lot shittier. Um, and I have a lot of empathy for them. I really do because like you, they couldn't. So they couldn't have replicated my career path if you wanted to at this point. Mm-hmm. I had opportunities that they could never have had. They, did, they didn't have. I mean, internships that I had, I had when I when I was in university, I had a union paying gig at the Toronto Star Radio Room. I had that for the last two years I was in university. I mean, that was, I can't remember what it was, but it was like a $20 an hour. Like it was a union shop job to sit there in the Toronto Star's radio room, which in case you don't know what that is, that means it's a it's a it's a room where they fill all the police and, and ambulance scanners. And you're listening to those scanners 24 hours a day to an eight hour shifts. 
and you're waiting for something bad to happen. And then when something bad happens, you went and you told the, the assignment editor, hey, someone got murdered over at blah, 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 blah. The ambulances are on their way. And then they would send their, their staff reporters out to cover the event. And then sometimes if you were really lucky, you got to do a pickup, which is where you would call the families of the, of the homicide victim and be like, can I have a picture of your dead son? That was great training in journalism. There's none of that. That's all gone now. All of that's gone. Right? So, you know, and that really changed the character of, of, of the newsroom. That changed the character of the type of training that people got into. And it changed people's mindsets toward the, the and theory toward the job. So then, as I said, Trump comes along. This begins this really radical shift. There's a generational shift that's happening here. There's a class shift that's happening here in, news, in newsrooms. And all of this kind of hits its perfect storm moment with Trump. And this causes a lot of people to be like, look, the, the old values of the old status quo, or I mean, someone would even argue white supremacist values of the liberal status quo are inadequate to the mo- to meet the moment. You know, your values got us into this moment where now we're looking at, you know, Trump the fascist. And something's got to radically change. So that starts that process. Then, of course, COVID comes along. COVID forks everything. COVID, I, the way I describe COVID is COVID was a catalyst for everything. Everything in society that was kind of going weird and pear-shaped before COVID went more weird and pear-shaped after COVID, much more radically and much more quickly. Everything that was doomed before got doomed faster. And I think COVID really does break down, continue to break down trust because I say this, for most people, and I would include myself in this, this coming from a journalistic perspective, you know, we don't have experience, lived experience covering a major a really major prolonged society-wide event. Mm -hmm. That being said, like, okay, so I was around for 9-11. So holy shit, we were all around for 9-11. And for people who maybe don't remember this, what happened after 9-11 is there was a massive rally, the rally around the flag effect. There was a massive tragedy. All of a sudden, all of the old sorts of um, dispassionate the old dispassion, the old, like, you know, we don't take sides, that kind of stuff. For a moment of time, all of that was very suspended. And everybody was like, nope, America's the victims. We're going to, we're going to fly our flags. We're getting behind the flag. Fuck those terrorists who did that to us in 9-11. And that moment of suspended suspension of skepticism, that moment of suspended disbelief is what led to bad decision-making. It's what led to the war in Iraq, Mm -hmm. right? Everybody suddenly got the rally the flag effect kind of created this like well shit if you if you're if you're questioning the war in iraq you're kind of on the wrong side of history here and that's just what it's going to be and when people suspend that 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 disbelief when they suspend that that capacity for dissent at least terrible decision making we saw that with 911 so you think we would have learned our lesson but we didn't we didn't learn our lesson things kind of got back to normal a little bit a couple years after 911 a more normal ordinary course of skepticism was then was then started again there was a much more open environment toward noting that some lies were told and some mistakes were made that led to that bad decision-making. You know, at this point we're in, logged into uh, or Afghanistan and there's a bit of a, a cultural retelling of the narrative of how we got into Afghanistan. It ceased to be about revenge. It started to be about well, building schools for girls and shit like that. Right. Um, but essentially we go back to a more ordinary course of skepticism. Then the dissent, then Trump happens, and there almost is a kind of a mini rally, the rag flag effect, similar to what we saw with 9-11, but in the opposite direction. Then COVID happens, and then that another rally of the, the flag effect happens. And this, I, I described it then, it was almost like um, what I imagine happened to journalists during World War One and World War II, mm-hmm. when all of a sudden you weren't just journalists, you were also journalists on the side, right? So, you know, you didn't see a lot of Western journalists covering World War II from the German perspective. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, like that there was a shift in mindset in terms of what journalism is and what what it does and, and what what what's role it serves. And there was a similar kind of effect that happened during COVID. There was a sense that, oh, we're in the middle of a major crisis. Okay, the ordinary skepticism that I would apply here shouldn't apply because if I do that, people are going to die. So my role starts to be a little bit different. My role starts to be a bit more communicating the official statement from the government to people so that they don't make bad decisions and die on mass. Like that becomes the mindset. And for the first couple of weeks, that made sense. 
But as time went on, I think that that mindset needed to ease up and some more skepticism needed to be applied. Um, and it wasn't. And the end result is that the combined sort of we're going to take a side because taking a side is the right thing to do, combining, combined with the rally around the flag effect, led to a lot of groupthink around uh, the government's role in COVID. And I think that it, it it sort of amped up into a kind of almost a mass hysteria where, you know, to express skepticism of things like vaccine mandates was was impossible. You're killing people. You're killing people if you did that. You know what I mean? And and, and that was a a level of hysteria that 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 occurred, and it led to bad again. It led to bad decision making. In hindsight, it's really easy for us to see that now. It's really easy for us to see that now. It's 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 not easy to see those types of um, groupthink mindsets when you're in them. It's not that easy. So anyway, I think that that and now we're getting to the subject of my book, which is about moral panics and, and mass hysterias. I think now that it's over. I think it's easier for us to say, maybe we went too far here. Maybe we what we did there was wrong. It's very easy for us to say that in hindsight. But in reality, most people, I think, just want to put the whole thing behind them mm. and they want to move on. Mm-hmm. And I think that the if people are looking for a mass reckoning from media in terms of the errors that it made, you're not going to get it. I think if people are looking for a reckoning from the government, you're not going to get it. Uh, and I'm sorry about that people just want to put it behind them and move on. And they think that that's how we restore a sense of trust and unity in, in our institutions. I think it's just going to continue to destroy that sense of unity and, and, and trust in our institutions. So that's kind of where, where I think we are. Mm-hmm. And I, that sort of leads me to my next point, which is the anger from the public. And, and another big issue that we've heard about in the past year is this issue of journalists being harassed uh, and abused online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking in particular of that Carleton Journalism School panel on this recently. And I think this is a difficult issue to unpack, actually. Um, but I want to know how big of a problem do you think this is for our profession? This uh, For our profession? Well, like, I don't, I don't like to spend too much time navel-gazing about our profession because like, we're still in a pretty privileged position, man. You, know, you and I have a good job. We have a really good job. We're very lucky. And honestly, truth be told, I think that if you have are able to manage to cut out a career for yourself as a journalist, that's an honor. That means that there are people in this earth who think that you're uneducated, stupid asses smart enough to, like, to be worth listening to. That's that I I don't take that for granted. I I you know my my media outlet the line is is at this point fully subscriber funded. That means we have like thousands of people who think that my opinion and the opinions of my writers and the opinions of my co-founder are important enough to be worth paying money for. <laughs> like that that's a that's a privilege. That's an honored position to be in. And and I really have a hard time walking away from that and being like, yeah, but Twitter's mean to me, you know, because yeah, Twitter's mean to me too. Guess what? Twitter's been mean to me for a long time. <laughs> and you wonder what? Some of the meanest people on Twitter are actually Mark are my coworkers and colleagues. <laughs> Some of the shittiest people on Twitter to me personally are, are, you know, supposed feminist journalist <laughs> progressives. <laughs> you know, so I don't know what to tell you. Like, and I just sort of at this point, I don't really care anymore. I'm just like, you know what, whatever. You just you say your piece. It doesn't matter. I'm gonna say my piece, that's fine. What matters to me is 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 that I have an outlet to speak what I believe to be the truth. And I realize it's my truth because you know we're we're all blinded. We're all we're all have our 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 our, our biases. But I have an outlet to speak what I believe to be true. And I'm very honored and blessed that people are willing to support me in that. Maybe one day they won't be. Guess what? I'm still going to talk because I'm I'm that bitch. But but that's what it is. So, you know, does a degree of harassment come with that job? I mean, I think that's the really hard thing to unpack, right? Because I mean, the line between criticism and harassment to me is it's pretty clear. Most of it's harassment, but <laughs> but I mean, like that. There is a there is a line there, and it's sometimes that line's kind of gray. And being a public figure means that we're going to take it. And as being women, we take more of it. 
because people are consciously or otherwise, subconsciously or otherwise, I think less, um, less comfortable with women taking up space and being loud in public. And they respond to that accordingly. So what we get is is worse. And I think that also truth be told for the same reason, and um, what women of color get is worse. I, I, I have no problem agreeing with that, but I don't see a solution to it. I really don't because what are, what are we going to shut people up? How? And also bluntly, if, if, if something reaches the point of criminal harassment, what I want is I want a police system to take that seriously. You know, I, I've been the subject of, um, I would say, harassment that went over the line. Like I had one dude in local in Calgary who I won't name because his name would be recognizable um, as, a, as a local gadfly. But like, I remember I wrote this one piece where I, I was talking about a section of the city and I got the section of the city wrong. Like I said, it was in the Northwest instead of in the Northeast or something like that. And this guy got really obsessed and he started calling me about 20, 30 times a day. Um, and he started calling me from like uh, uh, pay phones and he started calling me from supermarkets and things like that. Right. And it was getting to where it was, it was scary. It was starting to scare me. Um, and the guy was like, well, I just, and he's leaving me messages. Well, you got the you got section wrong. You got the section wrong without realizing that the reason why I'm not picking up to acknowledge that I got the section of the city wrong is because you're acting like a fucking lunatic. <laughs> like, you know, like to me, that was, that was, that was, that was over the line. And um, so I called the police and, they actually took it very seriously. They came over to my 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 door and I said, "Look, I'm a journalist. I, I wrote this. This dude is been going on for weeks now. He's calling me 20 times a day from multiple locations. Like, I don't know if this escalates. If this guy, this dude is is you know he's he's active in local politics or whatever. Like, if I show up to an event, is he gonna bother? Like, what what's gonna happen here? I was freaked out. And they took it seriously and they went and visited the guy. I was not the first person this person had harassed. This person obviously was not well. Um, and they had a talk with him and he never bothered me. So, you know, my experience has been in, at least in the Calgary region, that that when you're harassed and to the point that is over the line, um, police generally do take that seriously. Um, so I think that that's just what you do. So, like I said, I don't, I don't have an obvious solution. I think it's a complicated topic to unpack. I do think that there is a disproportionate amount of harassment that, that gets leveled at different types of people um, for reasons that have to do with deep-seated bias. I think that that's, to me, undeniably true. But I don't see an obvious solution to it beyond the police need to take that seriously when it reaches the level of criminal harassment. It's uh, I mean, there's there's so many, so many issues right now in our in our business. And there's there's a lot to talk about. But just because we're we're short on time now, I just have two more points that I want to touch on very briefly. And the first one is is the CBC. Um, I don't talk a lot about the CBC. I don't have any desire to be a professional CBC critic. <laughs> But there is, uh, CBC is very newsworthy right now. In a recent poll, uh, 45% of Canadians were drawn to the idea of shutting down the CBC to save tax dollars. Mm -hmm. I think maybe even more concerning public complaints to the ombudsman are way up, uh, 60% up. And I am worried that they will get defunded. I recently sat on a McDonald Laurier panel on the future of the CBC with Peter Menzies and with Andrew Coyne. And I, I was really struck on a recent podcast, you recently made a compelling argument about what might be done to reform the CBC. Can you just briefly walk us through your thinking yeah. on that? So, I mean, a lot of conservatives just want to defend the CBC because they feel that the CBC is institutionally biased against them. Personally, I think that that is uh, an oversimplification of the problems of the CBC. And I think you you probably agree with that. It's, it's more complicated than we don't like conservatives, blah, blah, blah. That's a very cartoonish character. There is a problem with institutional bias at the CBC, but it's not simple. It's not a simple problem. And it's not, there is no one CBC. There are multiple CBCs, okay? And they all have their own cultural issues. They all have their own institutional issues. And they all have their own biases. But like the CBC Calgary is not the same the same thing as Radio Canada. <laughs> like it's like, these are different, these are different institutions within the institution. It's a hydra. So my argument to this was always like, for the conservatives to be saying we need to be shutting down the CBC in a moment where the private sector can't fill that gap really would be potentially dangerous. Because I do think that there is a huge need for professionally collected and curated information. There's a need for people to there's a need for a place where people can go to, to be like, what literally what is happening in my city today? And B is this information and news that I'm hearing about through Facebook bullshit or not. There needs to be a professional outlet that can serve that role. The problem is that the CBC rightly or wrongly cannot serve that role now. 
because of the lack of trust that has infected that institution and not just that institution. I mean, all journalism's to some extent, but I do think there's a massive perception problem within a significant plurality of Canadians that the CBC is, isn't a reliable place to go to for that kind of information. They're, they don't, they don't sense they're getting a very good balanced view of the world from the content that that, 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 that the CBC is producing. I think, I, I think that's a legitimate problem for the CBC. But we are in this moment where something needs to serve that role. And the government, the liberal government right now, has tried to fix the problem of dying media with C-18, which is just an absolutely Byzantine mess of a law. C-11, and they're going to try and do something later down the pipe with online harms, which I think is just censorship written large. They see this as being... All of these people are scared and angry and they don't like us. It must be the disinformation's fault. It's got nothing to do with us. And surely, therefore, if we can control the flow of information, we can make them happy again. I mean, it's just, it's it really is that asinine. So I think that there is a, a an opportunity here to fix problem. And that is fixing the problem of the decline of media, fixing the problem about the lack of trust in, in, in information and fixing the problem of the fact that, you know, we do, we are inundated with lots of information and tons of it's bad. And it's really, really hard to sort through the good stuff and the bad stuff. Even smart people really struggle to sort, sort through the good stuff and the bad stuff. You know, there is a role for a professional class of people to help people do that. But in order for that professional class to be effective, they have to be trusted. So I think that there is a role for under a conservative government. I don't think it'll ever happen under a liberal one, but under a conservative government, I would really like to see them not talk about defunding the CBC. And I think they would. I would like to, see, to hear them talking about a real mandate review. The CBC operates under the auspices of the federal government. They are creatures of the Broadcasting Act. There's absolutely room for a mandate review. And one of the problems that I think the CBC has is that ultimately it tries to be too much to too many people. It has it suffers from a massive problem with mission creep. They try to take on more and more and more roles with a limited budget. They wind up stretching their core mandate too thin. And the end result is that the a lot of what people are actually going to the CBC for is becoming of poor, poor quality. Um, so a mandate review can help address that. And I but I think that, you know, if I were on that mandate review committee, I would say separate the news from the entertainment, fund news through some kind of trust mechanism so that it's not vulnerable to the annual whims of parliament, give them like one significant chunk of cash that they can then use to fund their operations off of um, interest, right? So you're, you're separating out outside of the, the, the funding channels of the annual, the annual budgets of parliament. And then you need to really lay out in clear, unequivocal terms, what we need the CBC to do. And what we need the CBC to do is to provide bluntly, a, a, a fair and objective reporting at the local level, particularly in areas where the, where the, where the private sector can't or does not operate. Um, and I think that the other thing that I would like to see the CBC do is get out of the mindset that they are there to compete with private operators. I would like to see a CBC that sees itself as being in service to its community um, rather than being in competition with other companies, media companies. And what, by that I mean is I would like to see a CBC that opens itself up to workshops and um, training so that people in local communities who want to obtain the skills to be of service to their community can go and learn how to be a journalist, can go and learn how to put together a podcast. Maybe the CBC can rent out at a very nominal fee, their 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 uh, video editing and podcasting facilities. Um, maybe they can have training workshops to train people on how to do this stuff and do it properly. Um, and I think that that would be a way to sort of treat the CBC as an institution whose role it is to preserve journalistic integrity and journalistic values for the next generation, and not necessarily as an organization that is going to be you know dictating what Canadian values are to its listeners, because I don't think that that is an effective approach. That's the, the the very short version of what I would like to see happen. And I think that now is a really, really good time to start thinking about that because, you know, there's a pretty good chance that post-media and tour star are not going to be around for much longer, or they're certainly not going to be useful for much longer. So you know, if they are even now, so, you know, what's left has to fill, has to step up and fill the gaps. And I think that, you know, that there's an obvious role for the federal government to play here, but to play in the ways that it has traditionally played it. 
the CBC being the most obvious among them. Mm. But that's just my opinion. I don't know, man. I'm just some chick. Who the fuck cares what I think? <laughs> and to close, Jen, I, I want to come back to where we started, which is Substack and the thriving nature of independent media right now. I want to just talk a little bit about what uh, you see the role of independent media is in Canada, what you see its downsides, what are its upsides, and, and how hopeful are you that that will fill some of the gap here? Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the downsides. The downsides is scale. You know, we struggle in a, in a relatively small media market with scale. Uh, we're not Americans. You know, we have access to one-tenth the size of the audience right off the bat. And because we uh, struggle with scale, trying to find a business model, like like Matt and I can have a business model that will pay us part-time and maybe will pay us full-time, but try running a, a, a news outlet that pays 10 people, right? That's That's a big jump. So far, we can't see that in our numbers, right? Like I can see us growing to a point where we could maybe support four or five, but that's where our newsroom taps out as far as I can tell. Now we can potentially do a lot with four or five. You know what I mean? Like we can do a heck of a lot more than we're doing now. In fact, you might be shocked by how much we can do with four or five. But the day of, a of, of firstly, the days of 40, 50, 60 person newsrooms, those are over outside of a sugar daddy kind of WAPO global mail model. That's, that's, that's not happening anymore. So all of these future media outlets are going to be much smaller and much more nimble than they have been in the past. That is a challenge. Um, the other challenge that I think independent media struggles with is that because it's much more focused on subscriber revenue, you know, with that's a benefit. People say, well, that's so great. It's so great. You're so noble. You're so pure or part or whatever. No, I mean, you're, you're the, the person who cuts your check, cuts your check. And the, the risk of a subscriber-based model is audience capture. And I think we've talked about this a lot before. I mean, we've seen a lot of media that start with good intentions, but have followed the subscriber numbers and the subscriber followers into some very dark rabbit holes. So trying to grow your business while being while maintaining some 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 how should I say some ballast, some values and some ballast is a real is a real challenge. It is. Um, because also not only do you are you following where your subscribers are from purely profit-seeking or cynical perspective? But you're also following them because they're part of the community that supports you. And so you're all kind of consuming the same information. You're consuming the same sort of thinking, like you're you're attracting people who think like you, right? And so the end result is, uh, you know, you, when that's the case, you're not surrounded, you're surrounding yourself with people who disagree with you or are skeptical of you, and you can fall into some bad habits of thinking and bad habits of mind. You can fall into groupthink. That's the problem of audience capture. Um, so do I think that this is going to replace PostMedia, Torstar, all of these companies? Well, yes and no, it's going to have to, but the future isn't going to look like the past. And there are some significant risks and, downside, and downsides here. Personally, I think the future of journalism is going to be much more AI driven than we understand it at present. I can see in probably the next 10 to 15 years, maybe less, a future in which AI is able to pump out reasonable quality Workaday general assignment worker content. So maybe a future media organization in a medium-sized town like Medicine Hat or whatever is one person behind the desk telling the AI bot to punch out the latest uh, an article from the latest town council and an article you know based on the three press releases they just received and an article based on the weather and blah blah blah. And one person can probably produce ten to twenty articles that way without really working that hard. Maybe just doing some fact checking or whatever. Not really working that hard. Produce 10 to 20 articles, that's actually a healthy local newspaper. That's a healthy local news hub. And you're doing it with one person now. So I think that is probably coming down the pipe um, for good or for evil. And, you know, there's going to be outlets like, you know, you and me in the line and, and, and all sorts of different types of organizations like that that are experimenting with different models. I don't think there's one answer. I don't think there's, I don't think Substack's the be all end all. I don't think there is, I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think there's a lot of different experimentation. And I think it's going to be a really tricky 10, but really interesting 10 to 15 years as a result of that. Mm. And just in the very near future, what are you watching in Canadian media? What are you, what are you going to be looking at in the next couple of months? Oh, I think everybody is going to be right now, what, the next couple of months is going to be watching to see what, what Google does. Yeah, Google's now threatened to, to pull out from, from links. And a lot of people said, well, that's a bluff, that's a bluff, that's a bluff. I think it's a negotiating tactic. I don't think it's a bluff. So unless we see the government make some make some moves to how C-18 is regulated, because of course it's past royal assent, so it's law, 
But uh, the CRTC is now going to decide about how that's going to actually shake out in, in practice, what its regulation, what its regulatory framework looks like. So unless we see some movement from CRTC and from the government in terms of what falls under the scope of this legislation, who falls under the scope of this legislation, and whether or not we're just asking these companies to hand over blank checks to their competitors, um, Google probably will pull the, pull the plug on us. And I think that even a short-term cutting of traffic could present some significant existential risks to Canadian journalism and the media industry as a whole. And I don't think people are quite understanding the, the, the scope and depth of that problem just yet. Mm. Well, Jen, I really appreciate you taking the time today to do this deep dive into media. And uh, I appreciate your work. And I'm so glad the line is there doing what you do. I just hope that your international audience is is, is fascinated by this kind of media as I am. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> I tried to keep it interesting. <laughs> Thanks again. All right. Cheers. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing now more than ever to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>